Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. But I find from reading comics and, and cartoons, we, we know how, we know pretty much how to, and I mean this in a good way, we kind of know how to manipulate the viewer's eye and mind to get a certain result. I mean, if you think about it with a gag cartoon or a single panel cartoon like you might see in, in Private Eye or something, you know, it's one drawing, yet your eye does move around it and it connects with the caption and the thing and there's a time in there, there's a snap to it. And if it's successful, there's a little spark of recognition when you look at it and you get a response. I tried to take that, uh, that method and put it now into a longer format, hopefully where each um, scene isn't an illustration of words, but is a combination of pictures and words. To be alive and to think are the same thing. The arresting words of American cartoonist, writer and teacher Ken Grimstein from his engrossing new graphic biography, the Tree Escapes of Hannah Arendt, a tyranny of truth published by Bloomsbury. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is the relationship between truth and politics? And was Hannah Arendt one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with American writer, cartoonist and teacher Ken Crimstein, whose latest book, The Tree Escapes of Hannah Arendt, has just been published by Bloomsbury, where Ken writes, Arendt was a conscious pariah, an Aaronist bound by no rigid rules. Ever a lightning rod for controversy. A mind that wrestled with the world and thanks to her passion and fury and typing skills, still battles away. So who was Hannah Arendt? What exactly was her political philosophy? And how does her writing and ideas speak to the 21st century? Hello, my name is Ken Crimstein and I'm a cartoonist for The New Yorker and I also uh, do graphic novels and graphic non-fiction. Uh, my most recent book is the biography of a political philosopher and political scientist and activist, uh, Hannah Arendt, and it's called The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt, A Tyranny of Truth. And I'm going to read just a little bit from the introduction. All too human, introduction to a life. Too soon, too angry, too smart, too stupid, too honest, too snobbish, too Jewish, not Jewish enough, too loving, too hateful, to manlike, not manlike enough. What follows is a story of a life of a person called Hannah Arendt, born into a lost world, in a lost country, in another era, a refugee philosopher thinker whose name may sound familiar. In the end, and in the beginning, remains the question, why did this person, arguably the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, renounce philosophy? And despite that, does her thinking offer a viable way for humanity to move forward? Really well done on the biography, Ken. I have to say it was very inspiring uh, read. Um, so vibrant and um, so entertaining in some parts. And then so, you know, some of the questions that you bring up, um, some some uncomfortable ones. Um, so pressing for where we are today and what's happening in terms of our world and its political shape. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. How would you describe the state of creativity and imagination globally today? Well, I think the 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 status of creativity and, and imagination in the world today is probably what it what it's always been. Um, very, very good uh, and extremely hard to get out. Um, you know, uh, I think people, I, I believe that people have a lot of ingenuity and they're always coming up with new ideas um, and, and new solutions. But it's really, really hard for them to penetrate the massive... Um, uh, systems, uh, whether it be the editorial publishing system, and I think the the noise that we've got now with the internet has created um, a lot of voices that we maybe can't totally uh, control. Um, so I'm hopeful about individual humans' uh, potential, but it's tricky about how they can get it out and communicate it to others. And I think it maybe always has been. Um, having said that, I'm really um, so pleased that you found the fact that I did this history um, in a graphic novel form, if you will, in a comics form, so compelling. Uh, I have to say, I didn't even realize it would be 
quite as uh, compelling when I set out on it. I mean, I was just a kid that loved comic books and uh, loved history. I think, you know, my childhood reading consisted of uh, equal part comic books and equal part the encyclopedia. And somehow after many years, it turned into this. And uh, I think the ability to put pictures, historical pictures that show setting, even if they're drawn, as we're familiar with, um, to characters and words, uh, sort of what I sometimes call it, it's like scraping the barnacles off of history. It's a fresh look at history. I mean, so much about history, we have these preconceptions. You know, a lot of the people who populate the histories or the biographies that we read are like statues that you might see in the park. And people aren't statues in the park. People get up and eat and talk to people and have problems, but they also do the tremendous things uh, that they do. So for me, it just was very natural, you know, having done cartoons and expressed myself that way to tell the story of a person this way. I guess it's um, sort of unusual in the world of biography. I, I wasn't even really aware of that when I set out. I'm just wondering, Ken, do you think that, you know, a graphic uh, novel or a graphic um, a graphic biography can actually, I suppose, probe at history, probe at the nature of humanity and maybe unfold a character or illuminate a character in a different way um, than just your straightforward biography does? Like, do you think it can, does something different? Yes, I, I really do. I really think it does. I mean... I think anybody who, who who's ever looked at, at a cartoon or a comic book, and I think by this time, just about everybody has, you know, we might think, oh, that's a guilty pleasure, but there's something happening there in the way that you, um, in the way that you ingest and feel the information, even if it's, I don't know if they have these over there, but sometimes some gum that we have here called Bazooka Joe has a little cartoon in it, a little comic strip in it. It's ridiculous. It's two frames. But even if you look at that, you, you, you feel it or a punch cartoon or something. So when you combine that sense of place with um, the words, yeah, you feel it, you inhabit it in a different way. Um, you know, I think one thing that's so uh, interesting about doing this is that geography, you know, as I, as I said, um, as I've been thinking about lately, geography really is destiny. Where you are, what kind of a chair you're in, what the weather's like, what time it is. And in a, in a comic strip or a cartoon, you know, um, place is there. It's always there. It's in a place. And in our lives, you're always in a place. So I think, you know, it adds that, that dimension. Not to say that, you know, great historians and terrific writers don't set that sense of place, too. We get, uh, we get a little bit of advantage when we can actually um, do the little drawing. Uh, so I, I do think, in a way, um, yeah, it... it it, it's just a different way in that maybe gives you some additional information. You know, and I was a history major and I love history and biography and all this sort of stuff. We read um, and, and, and make note cards and get our information from books. But for me, I also get information from photographs and from going to the places and, and photos ask me questions. For instance, with Hannah Arendt, uh, her face was a question to me, like how, What's the consistency? There, there are about 20 photos of her, 30 photos of her that are extant. What was the consistency of all those photos? That was, that was data for me. And I had to figure out how to summarize that in a visual form. And then I, for instance, I saw a really strange uh, photograph, which I adapt in the book, and I couldn't believe it in my research, where it's sort of like 40 men in suits looking very stuffy and very academic at the gates of some university. It looks like it might be Princeton. And they're in the front row of these five or 10 rows of all these philosophers, I would imagine, is, is Hannah Arendt sitting there. And her attitude and where she's placed, I mean, that's, that's historical data for me, but visual, pictorial. So uh, I think when you wrestle with that, since we are highly visual people, and if anything, these days, with this uh, Instagram and Facebook and, you know, I mean, we're taking more photos now than anybody ever took in history. <laughs> um, we are becoming, if anything, more uh, visual information that's used to communicate is becoming more a part of our language. So, wow, you know, why don't we use that? Why don't we try and use that language to communicate um, 
historical stories. That yeah. is so interesting when you say that her, you see her face as a sort of question because it brings up so many questions in relation uh, to both the process of putting together a, a graphic biography as well as her own political ideas about the nature of, I suppose, society and, and, and life. Tell me, um, she's such an enormous character and, you know, she wrote uh, so uh, widely in lots of different, you know, she wrote ph- philosophical stuff, political stuff, social commentary, essays, they're so vast. How did you actually condense a life and all her writing into a graphic biography? Because I can imagine when you set out, some people probably laughed at you and probably thought that it was a crazy idea to, you know, because it was just so challenging. Yeah, I uh, had I known, I would have laughed at myself when I set out. But I just uh, I just uh, plowed in because I was so fascinated with her character. And I had um, a few questions. I was by no means an expert, but I had a conviction that, um, you know, stories are for everybody. Stories are for people. You know, I, you know, I have some friends who are philosophers and, you know, I talk to them and, you know, quite frankly, I get a little upset. I'm like, why can't you, you're supposed to be saying things that we're supposed to relate to. Uh, In fact, uh, one of my friends uh, who's an analytical philosopher, the type of people who study language and all that kind of stuff, very, very almost mathematical. Um, when I mentioned him, I thought he'd be so excited. I'm doing a, a, a graphic biography of Hannah Arendt, and he looked at me perplexed and said, I just don't understand anything she says, <laughs> which, 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 which for me was, was great. You know, but you know, the, the, it's a process of reduction. I had to figure out what not to put in, and I made a lot of false starts. But the initial uh, compulsion was to connect this incredible life, as you said, um, uh, the life of a person who basically was born in East Prussia, a country that no longer exists, when cars were just becoming invented, you know, horseless carriages on, on cobblestone streets, and dies uh, peacefully on the Upper West Side of Manhattan after the Ramones have started gigging and uh, Nixon has long resigned. Uh, you know, that's an arc, that's a life, but what did that life, how did that um, inform the thinking because the thinking is a for me the thinking is a is a byproduct of the life or the, they're equal so I had to figure out what to keep and what not and like I said there were many um, missteps along the way to give it a form but one of the things is you're working on a story like this a biography I think you know the character gives you gifts so Hannah uh, and I'm sorry to refer to her as Hannah but I feel like after all the time she spent in my head, I, I'm allowed to refer to her like that. But so she had these escapes that seemed to me to be real good tent poles. And definitely the first one when she um, escapes the Gestapo for trying to do some um, pro-Zionist work after the Reichstag fire, and she's put in prison. And then the second one, when she yet again escapes the Nazis uh, from uh, France with the refugees. And then the third one I felt was a more of a psychological escape. And that was the big puzzle that I had to figure out because, you know, as Aristotle tells us, we have to have three acts. And, uh, you know, Hannah followed Aristotle very closely. (laughs) So I think that structure helped me. But like I said, at certain points, I mean, one of the inspirations I had was you know, when you have a really interesting person who maybe is known for only a couple of things, maybe take a point of their life that isn't as well known. So I wanted to sort of do the young Hannah Arendt. I just wanted to do what got her to the point of maybe uh, writing uh, Origins of Totalitarianism. But I felt that really, you know, I had to do the whole arc of her life. And luckily, um, those big uh, tentpole things allowed me to just give it at least enough drive I think, to give it some structure. Um, it was very difficult. I mean, a lot of stuff was left on the cutting room floor, uh, so to speak. But having said that, um, certain uh, questions, certain obsessions of hers, certain um, misunderstandings of hers that she hung on to her whole life, which is what makes us all human and makes characters interesting, um, they were problems that I had to work out. So, you know, that's that's what kept it interesting. And she was a very conflicted individual. So that was a gift too to a writer. 
sounds like a very intimate and intense process. I'm looking at um, one of your illustrations and it is of Hannah Arendt in the arms, or shall I say, actually he's more possessing her than the other way around, with um, Martin Heidegger, the uh, great German philosopher. And you have, um, it begins a potent cocktail of lust and love, of passion and philosophy, of secrets and lies, where ideas assume political form and bodies melt into the ether. I am no virgin, but the forbidden nature of our liaisons allows us to discover things and thoughts nobody has touched before. I thought that was great and the picture is so captivating. It's so, um, it throws you into this storm of love and sex and and romance or whatever it was. And it makes her so human and um, it takes you out of your head and more into your heart, if you will. Yeah. Well, thanks for noticing that. I mean, um, that that spread that actually, that's on the right-hand side of a spread was you know, I had to wrestle with um, what was the nature of their affair, which is which is hidden pretty much during her life, but it you know very much is common knowledge now. And um, you know, then I so I had to figure out you know who was Heidegger at that time, even though a lot of you know uh, again subsequent things have come out in his character. I show it as sort of um, you know questionable throughout the whole book, but definitely. Um, you know, then I get into the emotion, you know, and um, what was the emo- what could the emotion have been like? And, uh, and then I, I look into my own life. And if you think about it, it was a very forbidden uh, relationship in many ways. I mean, he was married. He he was the professor. She was Jewish. She was a student. But their intellectual sparks were just incredible. And there was this kind of uh, magnetism. And I'm a fan of old movies. It's interesting um, that you note on that frame, that frame, uh, that page you described was really inspired by old movies. I started looking at those kind of Hollywood shots of where, you know, maybe, you know, uh, uh, you know, Clark Gable would be giving, you know, somebody a kiss. And I because I think, you know, I try to inhabit what is the mind that the people would had at that time. And, you know, I think that kind of romance would have been in the air and they were both extremely romantic people. So, um, you know, at that point, I just think the, the pictures, again, the pictures, the pictures take over. And I think the nuances that you get from that kind of a highly, um, you know, emotional and, 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 and erotic, not just in maybe a sensual way, but in a thinking way, um, thing happened between them. And it, it obviously was extremely powerful because for both of them, you know, they carried that passion throughout their life, how they dealt with it. Um, and whether they acted on it and what they did with it is the subject, a lot of the subject of the story. But yeah, I, I always wanted to show that these weren't statues. These were people, uh, and their ideas are what comes out of their life and their mistakes. And, you know, as I said before, Hannah posed a huge question for me, basically like, you know, what is this person in all her size? So and I suppose that, you know, when, you know, some people are really focusing in on the different uh, frames, as you call it, and the different images or illustrations within the frame. And then others are very exacting, uh, reading all the text. But you can misinterpret, you know, what a writer says, um, with what they've written. But you also can misinterpret uh, a visual frame as well. So I'm just wondering about your decision making within all of that. How curtailed are you within that? Well, you know, I think the thing about drawing, um, when you, you know, and I've done many, many cartoons over over the years. I mean, I started, you know, when I was breaking into the New Yorker, and I've been in various publications in the UK, uh, from Punch before it expired to uh, other ones that are going on. And the art of the the art of that, you get you get so familiar with learning how to um, put across um, visual visual information, but you realize. Something happens when you're doing a drawing where at a certain point, and especially when you combine the drawing with an idea, um, it conforms to what I call this equation of one plus one equals three. In other words, the words give you a certain part and the pictures give you a certain part, but the combination takes it into some completely different place that you can't define. And you just have to sort of say to yourself, does that feel right? Is that feeling like it's pushing the story along and is there no, um, you know, redundant information there? So, um, you know, for me, I spent the better part of two years writing 
All I wanted to do was sit down and put pen to paper and start drawing. But I've tried that before. That doesn't work. It's too, you have to have an idea. And so I had to crack the script. But the interesting thing is, is once I sort of got the, the story and I actually started drawing it, the pictures really started to flow because I realized that in a way I had been rehearsing the visuals the whole time. And it started to really take off, almost have a momentum. So, um, you know, the other thing that's really great is as you're starting to put the words of the pictures together and you can see if things are redundant, you can throw out a lot of stuff. And then you can say, well, I don't have to be literal about that. I can um, get symbolic about it. I can put an arrow there. I can cut back and forth in time. I can, um, I, I can condense things. So for me, um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a very visual person. I look at paintings. I get so much information from them. To be able to use that kind of pop narrative power with words, um, you know, I, I guess I have, would have to leave it up to the, my readers or viewers to determine whether or not uh, the images conform to what they thought they, they should. But I find from reading comics and, and cartoons, we, we, know how, we know pretty much how to, and I mean this in a good way, we kind of know how to manipulate the viewer's eye and mind to get a certain result. I mean, if you think about it with a gag cartoon or a single panel cartoon like you might see in, in Private Eye or something, you know, it's one drawing, yet your eye does move around it. And it connects with the caption and the thing. And there's a time in there. There's a snap to it. And if it's successful, there's a little spark of recognition when you look at it and you get a response. I tried to take that, uh, that method and put it now into a longer format, hopefully where each um, scene isn't an illustration of words, but is a combination of pictures and words. Tell me, Ken, when you look at the expanse of her writing, whether the origins of totalitarianism, the human condition, Eichmann in Jerusalem, are we refugee the essay? Like, there's such a range there and she has such a such a reputation uh, and such a solid figure. It's amazing to think that throughout all her writing life, she was under massive uh, emotional and mental stress and she was able also to come from a position of conflict, come out of as a refugee over to America and write so prolifically. It is outstanding to think how she, uh, her resilience skills and how she was able to keep fighting on, keep pushing on through that, because she clearly came out of a very traumatic situation. Yeah, a very traumatic situation. I mean, I think she faced death a couple of times trying to escape. And um, then she, any jobs that she took were, were very demanding and the relationships that she had. But uh, so this is the question, you know, what fuels a person like that? And I think for me in the book, she had, for whatever reason, this almost superhuman compulsion to figure, to understand how the world works. Like she wasn't, she wasn't content to just live in the world or work in the world. Maybe a combination of her innate genius and, and her upbringing, uh, who knows? She, it was not a small matter for her to try and wrestle with the biggest questions. There's a lot of people in Germany and around the world, but particularly in Germany in those uh, interwar years did. I mean, they tackled the big questions, you know, you know, what is, is, you know, how does time work? Can we turn matter into energy? I mean, these are not little questions. And she was right in there with them. She had this incredible gift. And I think something about that, um, I think she... You know, in my estimation, now I'm sort of speaking as the person who spent time with her and wrote the book, I think she got an incredible amount of joy out of wrestling with reality. And she was an extraordinary writer and an extraordinary reader. So she liked to utilize this gift to try and then express this. And it was almost as if there weren't enough hours in the day for her to do to do this kind of work. So you're, you're quite right. I mean, I mean, I learned from her about the environment. I learned from her about poetry. I learned from her about storytelling. I just have no comprehension of how this person could have done everything that she did. Maybe her days were 48 hours long. I don't know. I can't figure it out. What comes out really strongly, I have to say, in the biography is that Hannah Arendt was, was such a truth teller. And what's so impressive is that she was willing to risk not being liked. And that is so commendable, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's even more so. I didn't I didn't put this in the book, but one of the first um, things that came up when I was researching her, um, somebody remarked of her that her true genius was she had a genius for friendship. 
which I think is, when you read a philosophy, you can kind of see that, yeah, the notion of friendship is something that's a really important thing for her, how people should give each other dignity and, and things like that. And she made statements, not once, but several times in her life, that cost her some of her dearest friends. And for somebody who valued friendship so highly, to be willing to sacrifice that high value, that high value thing for something that she's perceived of as, I have to do this because it's true. I mean, it's very courageous. And, um, you know, I just think that, you know, she may have made mistakes. She admitted it. I mean, uh, somebody once said to me, I mean, unlike many philosophers you can think of, you know, many, uh, she didn't have a, a, you know, a school, a cadre, you know, seven people uh, tagging along behind her, pouring her tea and things like that. She was a lone uh, thinker. And um, she sometimes would overstep or say things that were, you know, uh, like I say, too human, too this, too that. But that's who she was. And, um, you know, she did have managed to maintain some very close friends. I think uh, her second husband was that was an incredible relationship. Um, But this is a person who embraced life. And she does say, and one of the things, again, that I got out of it is that you know, to live the life of the gods, you know, everybody wants to live this life of everything happening, or as I sometimes refer to it as, you know, we all want to live in Disneyland. Well, that, that wouldn't please anybody, not even the gods. And in fact, if you look at Disney's work, his best work, even Disneyland isn't Disneyland. So dark and dark and light are together. And she said, look, you, you know, the tough and difficult things about life are as much a part of life as the good things. Um, so I think uh, the only thing I can refer to it as is courage. I think she was very, very courageous. And, you know, it's a, I think courage is a major human question we all ask ourselves. Like, are, are heroes, you know, a little bit genius and a little bit stupid at the same time? You know, I mean, that's a question I ask myself. I don't know if we all do. but And she certainly fits that bill for me. Her dad um, died of syphilis when she was quite young and you, you write how she threw herself into into books and she read a lot of Greek uh, tragedies and she kind of seemed to have got some kind of consolation of sorts from the tragedies. And she seems to have be, had a kind of, from a very early age, she seems to have been very self-possessed and contained, emotionally contained. And um, do you think that allowed her to get through what she did during World War II and to be able to survive what she got through? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to be an armchair um, psychologist, but I guess any any novelist or uh, or uh, biographer is a little bit. But I mean, she was the only child, and she was quite doted upon by her mother, who was very loving, but also sort of demanding, and gave her a lot of wisdom. And I found that really interesting. Like, you know, just that. Like, why would she kind of drag her mother around with her for her whole life? But you know. Yeah, I think there was an innate courage, and, and there's a scene early in the book, um, and I get it out of a couple of the biographies. And again, you know, when you're dealing with someone of this magnitude of, you know, kind of a character, so her father dies um, when she's quite young of syphilis, really horrible, <clears throat> had lost his mind. You know, this was before the vaccine. And um, she's quoted as saying something to her mother along the lines of, and this is an eight, an eight or nine year old girl. You know, yes, mother, it's really terrible that father died, but it's what happened and we have to move on. So she's consoling her mother and she says, and okay, so we're going to move on. And by the way, could you, you know, I'd really like to start reading, you know, um, his collection of books by Immanuel Kant. Um, And then she teaches, like you say, she teaches herself ancient Greek and then puts on an ancient Greek performance circle as a teenager um, little performances, as a teen would do, you know. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of any anybody who would respond to life like this, but there was a strength of character there, and I do think, you know, she was thrown out of school as a kid for um, making a protest because she thought the teachers were being too stupid. I mean, this was an arrogant person in a way, and I think she would admit she was a snob. She also loved people and loved life, but I, I, I think there was a sense of, I mean, I guess if I had to think about it from my point of view, like a great musician, like if you're uh, Vladimir Horowitz or you're you're a prodigious um, musician or artist, filmmaker, you know, uh, Orson Welles, you get joy out of doing your work. And I think she got joy out of doing her work, which she was doing from a very young age, 
which was telling the truth and trying to figure out the world. And I think that's what that's what energized her, you know, throughout. Um, that was her art. Talking books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with American writer, cartoonist and teacher Ken Grimstein about his new book, The Tree Escapes of Hannah Rent, A Tyranny of Truth, published by Bloomsbury. I ask Ken about Hannah Rent's iconic essay, We Refugees, and about its political relevance today. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's actually really heartbreaking. Um, to look back at an essay that she wrote, I think you referenced it before, called We Refugees, that she wrote, I think, in 1943. She had come to New York. Uh, She was stateless for 18 years without a passport, um, and she was in the midst of that. And she says things like, first of all, we don't want to be called refugees. I mean, she's writing from the inside. Um, She talks about the despair and she talks about one of the things that she really understood was that, you know, this sort of class of people who have no rights um, because they're between countries and they are just flotsam and jets and whatever floating on the face of the world is so horrible. You know, people need to be grounded. And um, the, it, it's quite sad that she was so eloquent about it. Um, and that it is still so relevant as we see people who are just uprooted and are just, you know, I think, you know, again, a lot of her thinking goes back to Greek uh, and and classical uh, thinking. And again, she tried to look at that in a very fresh way. And I try to figure that out too. Like, what does it mean? And, you know, why, why was it so horrible to be banished from the city state? Because then you have no, you have no place. And if you don't have a place, you have no freedom, you have no life. You're not an individual without place. And I think the horror of that, you know, she felt it. And, and, and it's not she just didn't do it analytically. You know, she lived it and, and she put it across. And then these ideas about truth and veracity, you know, uh, and emotion in politics. I mean, this is somebody who, you know, she never pretended to say I'm, I'm, I'm attached to some oracle of truth. She said, I lived through this. I saw this. I saw how people twist the truth. And, and I saw, again, with her clear-eyed vision, I saw um, that it isn't that people necessarily believe lies. It's just that they believe nothing. They become clay. They become malleable. They lose their ability to think. And at the end of the day, that's really the thing that she said. Like, that's her antidote. There is no other antidote, really, but just to think properly, which is from the point of view of everyone. You know, and I think, you know, even if you're going to jump again a little bit into the Eichmann thing, which is super complicated, but I'll, I'll bring it up. And she condemned him, of course, for <clears throat> the crimes he perpetrated against, you know, the murders and all that. And that was she felt that that was, yes, you know, he should die and be punished and terrible for that. But the trial, I think her way of dealing with what happened at the trial was she wanted to figure out a way to make sure this kind of um non-thinkingness. I mean, you could say that the banality of evil is the ordinariness of it. It's just ordinary because people don't think it's cliche, the clicheness. And uh, this is because this is a person who I think really loved life and loved thought. And uh, wow, you know, I don't know if we can live up to that standards, but even to kind of understand it uh, is, is a guidepost. So again, you know, um, this sort of factionalization and tribalization. I mean, I do think she, she definitely said, I'm a Jew. Um, I was born a Jew. I can't change that. That's who I am. That's my identity. I will deal with the world like that, but it's mine. I will deal with it. But I don't think she would have been you know, necessarily tribal about it. And again, these are huge questions, but um, so much of her thought, you know, even on to things like the environment, the human condition, uh, she sort of starts by saying, hey, the human condition is life on Earth. That's a big environmental statement. And when we hear about multi-billionaires and multi-zillionaires trying to make spaceships to go populate other civilizations, um, I don't think that really goes down with her. It's like, you've got to fix the Earth. Um, and, and on and on. So, 
yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a sort just like maybe, you know, Emmanuel Kant or Greek tragedy was a comfort uh, for her. I mean, reading Hannah Arendt for me beyond the book, just being introduced to her, because I didn't really know the depth, but almost any book or article or speech or thought that I um, encounter with her it is a, helps me. It's a lens through which I can better understand the world. Can I ask Very you relevant. a philosophical question, Ken? Just wondering, do you believe in human progress? Because if I imagine you had to sift through all her writing and some of her letters, um, you know, some of the very heavy thinking stuff as well as some of her lighter stuff. And, you know, what she wrote about, she was so prescient as a thinker and as a writer. And it is very disappointing to see, the, you know, the last 50 or 60 years, what has happened and to look and say as well, have we listened? Have we learned? Have we evolved in a more positive direction? Because a lot of the uncomfortable truths that she was putting out, um, you know, just after World War II uh, and up um, are still as relevant today. So it must really, you know, when you immerse yourself with all of this writing and so on and uh, looking at one particular life, it doesn't reflect too well on where we are today. Sure, it doesn't. It, it certainly doesn't. Um, you know, one of her great friends and inspirations that I just loved um, exploring in the book was Walter Benjamin, the philosopher and thinker and critic, great friend of hers. And, I, and this figures a little bit in the book. Um, you know, Benjamin writes this thing about the philosophy of history. And basically his take is that history is just one continuous catastrophe after another. Like it, it just is an endless ongoing catastrophe. Um, progress, uh, I don't know. I, you know, I think she thinks that we, the one thing that we can do is we can do new things. Um, they can be good and they can be bad. But I do think she says that if we think, if we really think through this phrase, think through from the point of view of the, everyone in the public space, um, at least we can maybe make sure some of the really terrible things don't happen. Um, that's really the best I think that she can offer is that, you know, the right kind of engaged thinking and action. And, and, and remember for her thinking is not just passive thinking. That's why she claimed she gave up philosophy because those were people who just sat around and contemplated. She it's action and it's, it's words and, and deeds that we see and that are true. So to that extent, you know, in, in that I, you know, Harkening back to what you asked me about in the beginning about creativity, yes, I. The one thing I I think I think people are really creative. Uh, you know, I, I I hear musicians busking on the street, and I'm like, why isn't this person like you know bigger than uh, Peter Gabriel or as good as Peter? I love Peter Gabriel, but you know what I mean. I hear genius people on music. I read things. I see things. I see ingenuity, and I think it's kind of like. Um, there's where progress for me lies in just getting all those voices out. Um, but yeah, it's very despairing. And she had a lot of really negative things to say about politics. I mean, she, you know, politics is not on a good, has never been in a good relationship with the truth. And, you know, people go into politics, um, not because they're power mad, but because, you know, all they, all they want is power, you know, like it, 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 they're born with this. I mean, she had a real problem with, that. So she threw down some really um, very progressive thoughts that are also very, very simple. And, you know, uh, you, when you're writing things, you have certain things that you think about and you attack on your wall or your mental wall in your head. And I think in many ways, what John Lennon was saying in Imagine could have almost been written by uh, Hannah Arendt in some ways. I mean, I find that the thinking there is very parallel. Um, and, you know, when he says it's just so simple and Hannah Arendt might say it is, too, although it is really difficult. People say, oh, you're, you can't do that. You can't get emotion out of politics. And you say, well, why not? You know, well, if it's so simple, why don't we act then, Ken? How do you explain our inaction? Well, because that means that we absolutely have to not be guided by fear. And fear is a good thing. It can protect you. It can protect you in the jungle. It can protect you in life. If, if you know. Put your wallet in your front pocket, not your back pocket, if you're riding a crowded subway. I mean, you can take precautions. But when it becomes a, an emotion that shuts you off from other people, um, and then politicians can galvanize that fear, 
and turn it into a, a movement that could get them elected or in power, um, it's hard for people to act. And I don't have an answer. I mean, there's one scene in the book where, you know, um, she's in a detention camp in southern France, and she's been doubly damned. She was thrown in this detention camp because she was a German national when it was France. And then the Germans take over France, so they let the German nationals go. But she's Jewish, so she has to stay there, and there's a lot of confusion. Who's what? Who's this? Who's that? And she says, oh, um, let's go to her fellow prisoners. Let's go. They're like, what? It's like, nobody knows what's going on. Let's just, let's just get up and leave. They're like, yeah, but, but the authorities told us, you know, everything was going to be under control and just wait two days and everything will be fine. And she has, she said, what part of what's been going on for the past, you know, 12 years, you know, don't you get, you know? So, um, you know, that's that individual, um, courage, uh, to be an outsider and um, I don't think a lot of people, you know, what you ask why, why is it? Because I think a lot of people, and, and, and Hannah Arendt again says it, people are, want to be comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. We should all be comfortable and happy. But you can't have a, there's some things that maybe you shouldn't be comfortable about. And, and, and there's this sense, I think she would say, that when you um, think, you know, oh, well, I've got mine and I'm comfortable. Um, well, you know, again, I quote another rock star. I mean, I grew up in this era, but I keep coming back a little bit sort of to, uh, you know, won't get fooled again. Uh, you know, here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. I mean, and Hannah said, you know, the greatest revolutionary will become a conservative the day after the revolution. I mean, she had this way of looking at how people are. And I think she's asking us and she, and her life was, at least in the way I interpreted it, an example of of a person who is who is um, courageous enough to try, you know, as I say in the book, become you know citizen, you know, number one of the new plurality, whatever that is, the new way of living. So it's a long a long answer. It's a huge question. Why do we still live in this fear uh, in the political state? But these are the types of questions that I think animated her, and I tried to show how it came out of the actions, the day to day actions in her life. She seemed to have a knack of explaining all the different complexities within our human nature and within that, that we all have so many faults and that we all are not just complex, but we can be hypocritical, uh, contradict and that we can swing from A to B. And as you say, possibly not thinking our way from A to B. So um, do you think that ultimately is her, her greatest legacy is that she was able to kind of show all the hidden shades Yes. I mean, I think, well, I don't know if she showed all the hidden shades, but she sure showed a lot of them. And, um, you know, what I tried to do with the book um, is, and I, and I overdid like footnotes um, and made them funny because I wanted a book people could go back into several times. And uh, one time you read it for the story and then one time for the pictures and one time maybe for the footnotes. And it'll take you places so that you can learn <clears throat> about the things that have influenced our world. Cause I also teach and, you know, uh, students who are 20, 21, 22, and I have kids that age, you know, they don't know about uh, Fritz Lang, the great German uh, film director. They don't know about uh, Hannah Hoke, uh, the woman German artist who invented photo collage. I didn't even before I started this. And, you know, they don't know about all this stuff. And, and, and so I wanted, I, I think it's a little bit of like, I wanted to, to throw something out there that, that just like sparked a lot of people to look into other things in the world and figure out what their point of view is. Um, and I think that would be kind of what, you know, again, I, I'm not aware of her, or at least tonally in her writing, and I could be wrong of her ever, uh, what I would say, sort of like pontificating or saying, this is the truth. I mean, that's a theme that kind of goes through my, this is my truth. This is truth. Let's, let's build it together. So, um, that to me is the real delight of her thinking. And, and, and it makes me hungry to hear what everybody has to say and express it. For anyone who hasn't read any Hannah Arendt, where would you start? What would you start off with? Um, in Hannah Arendt's books, actually, after having read so much, um, there's a recent collection actually called Thinking Without a Bannister, um, at least came out here in the U.S. and it's short, it's essays, but very, very interesting, provocative and uncollected essays. 
Um, our origins of totalitarianism is a little bit massive, um, great in bits. Um, the Human Condition, a wonderful book. Um, not that, I mean, it's, it talks about um, how we function in the world. Um, biographies of her can be very helpful. The one uh, that I really used a lot is often called the standard biography called um, For the Love of the World by Elizabeth Young Brule which is great. Um, you know, uh, there's an, there's an abridged essay. Uh, there's a great collection that came out called between, between past and future. Um, you know, and it, and don't feel bad if you read it slow and, and write in the margins and, and give it some thought. There are wonderful, interestingly for her, a great way to get into her is there's a fabulous video that's on YouTube that's translated when she was interviewed on German television, I believe uh, around 1962 or 63 um, by a really great German um, uh, interviewer who went on to go into the government. And uh, it's, it's really remarkable. And not only that, you get a sense of her personality. And um, just to give you a sense of how wonderful that interview is, the guy starts by asking, of course it's in German with subtitles. And he says, um, could you describe how you, how difficult it is to be a woman in the world of philosophers. And she takes a puff on her cigarette and looks at him and says, I have to, I have to protest. Um, I don't consider myself a philosopher. <laughs> so it gives you a sense of, uh, of how she is. I love the book of hers that I really, really love. And I find fairly accessible. I love history so much is a collection of her historical essays called men in dark times which interestingly features two women, Isaac Dennison and, and someone else. And it's about seven or eight essays about stories about people. And that was how she felt we, that, you know, she, she felt that's how we learn about the world through stories about people. And she, boy, did she deliver in that one. Uh, so I love that book. I mean, Eichmann in Jerusalem is a tremendous read. Um, it's, uh, you have to read it and be mindful of her tonality. Um, she is really making a case and, um, it's brilliant. I mean, the, <clears throat> for me, you know, I wish I could read her in German. I, I don't, but boy, she did a great job in English. Um, her essays are tremendous. I mean, she, she did an essay on Bertolt Brecht, her great friend, and she absolutely excoriates him for becoming an apologist for Stalin. And it's, I've never read an essay that so puts someone on a pedestal and so tears them down at the same time. I've never seen anything like it. it uh, it's called it, craft. Kamir, I might get you um, to um, end on a reading. Where would you like to read from? Well, um, at the very end, um, there's a little piece and, you know, these synchronies of, of, of um, Hannah's life. So I'll give you a little bit of a setup and then I'll, I'll, I'll read just uh, sort of the, the last two paragraphs of the epilogue. Um, so, you know, her whole life, she's saying, I've given up philosophy. I don't want to be a philosopher. Philosophy is just thinking, the vita contemplativa. You know, we have to live the vita, the, the vita activa, the active life. So she's saying this and saying this and saying this. And then she has this, she passes away, um, you know, between uh, coffee and dessert uh, with her great friend and mentor, Celebaron, at dinner, you know. And the next morning, they go to Hannah's apartment, and they're in her typewriter is the first page of her return to philosophy. And it says, on judgment. And, you know, all I can get is like, oh, why couldn't you have typed faster? You know, everybody wants to hear, you know, how she, how she did that. But um, I, I end the book by referencing that. And I say, um, the morning after Hannah dies, the first sentence of on judgment, her return to philosophy is found in her typewriter. Mary McCarthy collects, edits, and publishes the drafts of Hannah's final works, calling them the life of the mind. The two volumes constitute a field guide to the process of thinking through in the polarity-guided public world. From beyond the grave, Hannah says that although living in the world of plurality and natality is no picnic, if we want to avoid Auschwitz or the Gulag or Stonewall or Pol Pot or Attica, or ISIS. We as a species have no choice but to embrace it and endure it. In other words, there is no single truth. 
no silver bullet of understanding to guide us, just a glorious never-ending mess, the never-ending mess of true human freedom. American writer, cartoonist and teacher Ken Grinstein. The Tree Escapes of Hannah Arendt at Tyranny of Truth is published by Bloomsbury and retails for just under 17 euros in paperback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout out to the lovely Chris Bent on Sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with the courageous words of Hannah Arendt. Forgiveness is the key to action and freedom. How true. Good night.